0: bringing you the latest in tax credit news this is tax credit tuesday with your host michael novogratic hello i'm michael novogratic and this is tax credit tuesday this is our tuesday march 23rd 2021 edition today we're going to talk about what developers and investors and syndicators need to know about cost segregation studies particularly low-income housing tax credit properties. These studies have become increasingly popular in recent years, and today we're going to discuss why that's the case and will help you better understand how your property or investment could benefit from such a study. Joining me today is my partner, Craig Staswick, from Novogradic's Long Beach, California office. Craig works in many areas for our company, providing a tax, attestation, and consulting services to a variety of clients. And Craig is our leader or is the leader of our cost segregation studies practice and works with stakeholders on all sides of low-income housing tax credit transactions. Now, before we start with Craig, let me take a moment to get you up to speed on what a cost segregation study is, or at least give you a refresher. At its essence, a cost segregation study is a detailed review of the development and acquisition costs of property. The purpose of this review is to more properly categorize development and acquisition costs into their appropriate asset type and depreciable or amortizable lives. Now, the focus today is gonna be how costs are allocated among classes of tangible property as opposed to intangible property or expenses. Now, costs are allocated to intangible property and or expense, but for rental real estate, the focus of today's podcast, these costs aren't generally a, a significant portion of total project costs. Intangible and expense costs tend to be a more minor portion of the cost, and the tangible property tends to be the more substantial portion of project cost. Now, in rental real estate, there are four common tangible property asset types, namely land, and building, and site improvements, and personal property. Those are the four. Now, land, of course, isn't depreciable, whereas residential buildings have a depreciable life of 27 and a half years it may be 30 years because of interest expense limitation rules, you know, but generally speaking, it's 27 and a half or 30 years, which is a longer life than site improvements. Site improvements have a depreciable life of 15 years and, and personal property is depreciated over an even shorter period of time, five years. And Craig, will talk in a moment about how that's the, the depreciable life, but there are ways in which you can recover those costs even more rapidly. Now a cost segregation study of a rental real estate development will review and allocate project costs among these four categories. And these studies generally will result in a greater portion of costs being allocated to the five and 15 year class life property. thus accelerating depreciation expense that would otherwise be taken over 27 and a half years or 30 years, depending upon the elections that a property owner might make with respect to residential real estate, or they could even be classified as non-depreciable land costs. So there's clearly reasons to be engaging in a cost segregation study to accelerate tax deductions. Now, all types of depreciable or amortizable property can benefit from cost segregation studies. But as I noted, we are going to focus primarily on local housing tax credit properties, which are, of course, residential rental properties. And that's what most of what Craig's going to focus on today. But we will address other opportunities for a study beyond residential rental. I wanna to break today's discussion into three parts. I'm gonna start with an overview as to why cost segregation studies have become more popular in recent years. Then we're gonna look at when you, as a owner, investor, syndicator, should be thinking about engaging and getting a cost segregation study, as well as discussing what's involved in those studies. And then the third part, we'll wrap up discussing the future of these studies, and what you should be doing now. Now, this is an important subject for affordable housing properties as well as other property classes. And we have a lot of interesting ground to cover today. So if you're ready, let's get started. Well, Craig, I appreciate you joining me today. Hi hey Mike, thanks for having me on the podcast. Now I am excited to have you join me this week. I did a few weeks ago, mention during the course of another podcast, the importance of cost studies. And I noted that I'd be getting you uh, back, or not back, this is your first time on the podcast, but I'm sure you'll be back again to discuss this exciting topic. Now, cost segregation studies have been around for a long time. Uh, they've been around for my entire accounting career, uh, which didn't used to seem like a long time, but after I've been working in accounting for over 30 years, many will think that's a long time, uh, <laughs> but they've become much more popular in the past few years in the affordable housing area. And I wanted you to share some of your thoughts as to why they've become so much more popular in the last two years, if you could share those thoughts with our listeners.
1: Yeah, thanks, Mike. As you mentioned, cost segregation studies are not new and have been around for decades, and for decades have been very common in various industries, including market rate multifamily projects, which begs the question, why were LIHTC projects not utilizing cost segregation studies until recently? The answer to this question is an amalgam of issues. I'll kind of group my the issues into two groups, You know, pre-2017 tax legislation issues, And group two post 2017 tax legislation issues. Now, before the tax legislation of 2017, the previous iterations of bonus depreciation were 50% or less and short-lived. And because they were 50% and there was uncertainty if uh, Congress would re-up the bonus, there just wasn't enough momentum to entice developers and investors to explore adopting cost segregation studies throughout the light tech industry. So that was one. Let me just interrupt there.
0: When you say bonus depreciation was 50%, maybe you could expand for our listeners. I noted in the intro that, uh, council aggregation studies can move, uh, some costs and we'll properly classify them as 15 year depreciable costs or five year depreciable costs. How does that relate to your reference to 50%?
1: That's right. That's a great question. So it, when I say a bonus depreciation in the multifamily project world, that's going to be applying to your five-year personal property and your 15-year property. Um, in, in the Internal Revenue Code, the uh, bonus depreciation applies to uh, depreciable property with lives of 20 years or less.
0: And fi- and bonus depreciation means you get to expense it today. So you were saying that basically you could expense 50% of your in 15-year service. property or 50% of your five-year property at placement service so you're that's really correct. accelerating not just from 27 or 30 years to 15 or five but from 27 after 30 to fully expensing it when you place that right. service
1: that's correct and and while that was attractive 50 percent definitely yield to be had there because it was kind of short-lived you know, in a, a handful of years here and there through a couple iterations of of tax uh, legislations over the past 15-20 years, that wasn't enough to kind of adopt and and do the due diligence, time and resources to investigate if investors are okay with with uh, utilizing cost segregation studies. So that's a pre-2017 issue of kind of why there wasn't enough incentive to start doing cost segregation studies in the light tech world, although they were doing very common in the market way world. Another pre-2017 issue that lent itself to cost aggregations not being widely adopted was surprisingly a gap issue. Before 2014, investors would report their LITEC equity investments uh, on their financials, on the income statement. It would show them above the line, if you will. So as you know, these tax credit investments have a net loss. And so if that net loss is being reported above the line, optic-wise, that looks like a not attractive as an investment. And so when you were to approach your investors back pre-2014 to say, hey, I wanna do a cost seg, it will give you more tax yield. But in those situations, some investors were very gap sensitive to losses because of this optics problem where they would choose not to do a cost segregation study. So that was one thing hindering kind of the cost seg implementation into the life tech world. Um, After 2014, that issue was largely resolved with FASB allowing LIHTC investments at the investor uh, level to be reported in a different manner so that the optics, that that bad optic wasn't there anymore. So those are uh, what I call kind of the pre-2017 issues that were hindering cost segregation adoption into the LIHTC world. Now fast forward to 2017, tax legislation, there's a couple bullet points there that, that really turn the tide Is we should start thinking about cost segregation studies. So the first one is the corporate went from 35% to 21%. And so for deals that were underwritten, closed, under construction, suddenly their loss benefit schedule went from 35% to 21%. That's a big decrease in yield. And so investors, just because of that fact alone, are are looking for ways to to fill that gap. And that 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 alone made cost segregations part of the conversation. The other bullet point of post-2017 tax legislation is a hundred percent bonus depreciation. As I mentioned earlier, previous iterations were 50% and now it's a hundred percent. That's huge. That's very huge. And on top of that and this is the new twist on bonus depreciation, is you can get 100% bonus depreciation on used property. That's never been done before. And when I say used property in the Litex scenario, that's gonna be your acquisition personal property and your acquisition site work. And so now you have these two kind of bullet points, the corporate rate went down, and now it's 100% bonus for an extended period of time, and it's bonus on used property. Those two items, have lent itself to have investors investigate whether or not they want to do cost segregation studies. And as it turns out, they do. And it's becoming, as you mentioned in the podcast earlier, it's very popular and becoming very common in the LIHTC world. So those two things are kind of what the tech industry needed, if you will, to kind of get over that hurdle of, well, let's start doing cost segs. The results are very meaningful to Developers, particularly, you know, you, in some circumstances, you can increase tax rate equity by one to two pennies or more, depending on facts and circumstances. And so there's a lot of motivation out there to do these cost segregation studies as part of the, a Litech deal.
0: Thank you, Craig. That's a great overview. I really appreciate your uh, focus on the pre 2017 in terms of why the cost segregation studies weren't nearly as common as one might initially expect, particularly the gap influence uh, on the tax strategies that investors were engaging in, which is emphasizes how important it was to get those gap changes so that the geography of tax credits and tax losses were matched together to more accurately portray the impact of an investment in a tax credit property by a publicly traded uh, corporation. And I also appreciated your uh, emphasis on the ability to expense acquisition of personal land, personal property and land improvements that are previously in place in service because that is pretty significant when you're doing an acquisition rehab to now have expensing on acquisition costs very uh, right. significant uh, it also impacts if you're doing an in-place rehab uh, how you have to have the investor in, uh, earlier in the process, if you want to allocate those losses to the investor, it also can lead to tax planning for real estate developers who perhaps, if you're a taxable uh, entity as opposed to nonprofit, you might actually want to keep those losses on that uh, rehab. But we're not going to go into all of those developer tax planning issues in this podcast. Maybe we'll have a future podcast uh, on that topic. Maybe if some of our listeners are interested in that, they can let us know at at novico.com. But I want to not go off on a tangent, which I want to do sometimes, as listeners know. But I want to get back to you know, the particular subject here. So you've talked about why these studies are becoming more prevalent, if not the norm, for low-income tax credit uh, properties in this day and age. But the next question I'm sure our listeners have, both developers, syndicators, and investors, is when in the development process should they be thinking about a cost segregation study? Is this something that... You basically just wait until we come in, Novogata comes in and does the uh, cost certification. And at that time, you do the cost segregation study or is it something that needs to that should be
1: started earlier in the process? Great question. Uh, It should be started as early as possible. And when I say that it should be, you know, I can think I can think of a couple different scenarios. So if you're a developer and you're about to pitch your project. To your investor, and you're going to have you know your marketing materials, your slim down forecast. You're going to want to put a cost seg, estimated cost seg results in those projections to put your best foot forward to maximize your investment, and, and the goal being to try to get the most tax rate equity that you can. So you know I'm a fan of, and a lot of developers are doing it early, incorporating the results early, start the conversation early. Another scenario that I'm seeing quite often is where a developer didn't incorporate the results of a preliminary cost segregation study, which I can talk about in a second, what that is, into their into their initial initial conversations with the investor. And the investor analyzes the deal, comes back with an LOI. That LOI, in some cases I'm seeing, has a, an equity downward adjuster for personal property and site improvement targets. Meaning, if that place and service those targets aren't hit, there's going to be an equity downward adjuster for not hitting those targets. And so, in this scenario. You know, if you pretending you're a developer and you have an LOI right in front of you and it says, if you don't hit X personal property and Y site improvements at, at place and service, you're about to sign this LOI. Well, how do you how do you know that those numbers are achievable or maybe they can be even be even larger and maybe you can squeeze out even more tax credit equity? And so that's another scenario of where you want to do the cost segregation study as early as possible. And so. What we're seeing out in the marketplace and what we're doing is what I call preliminary cost segregation studies. So for your new construction or rehab, you're doing a preliminary cost segregation study as early as possible using a detailed schedule of values and and estimated project cost. So every project's different and you wanna make sure either the LOI targets are achievable or, or move them up even further in exchange for a tax credit for a penny or two. And so under those scenarios, that lends itself to start as early as possible. And if you were to do a cost seg, a light tech cost seg at place and service, you then have to go, well, why am I doing this? What's the what's the motivation there? And so, and we can talk about that later, but really to me, the motivation is maximizing investment for both the developer and the investor. And we all know you need to be layering that in early as opposed to at place and service. So that's a great question.
0: I definitely think that the, the best practice, if you will, is to get the cost segregation, at least study or a preliminary study uh, very early before you begin negotiating with the investor or why you're negotiating with the investor. So you can, as you noted, most properly estimate what your personal property land improvements are going to be. So your investor can include, you know, additional deductions earlier in the uh, earlier in the 15 year hold period. So they can calculate the IRR serve appropriately. And then as you point out, get the, the developer, get the maximum equity. Sure. Uh, and then of course there'll be a true up calculation based upon what the ultimate cost segregation study shows after the property has been built and placed in service. So maybe you can give us an example that maybe illustrates how a cost segregation study does accelerate uh, depreciation deductions.
1: Yeah. So one scenario would be, you know, absent a cost seg, new construction, light tech project, you know, most of the, without a cost seg, mo- most of the the costs are going to be allocated to building because you haven't gone through the engineering analysis of what is a short-lived asset, either five-year or 15-year. And there's going to be some low-hanging fruit there that that is very obvious that it's short-lived, you know, the appliances is one and certain types of site improvements is another. But beyond that, there's not a lot of during the the final cost certification, which is auditing eligible basis and is not identifying the three different buckets of depreciation, because all those three different buckets equal eligible basis. So as part of that process, this engineering approach isn't really being done. You're going to be left with probably, you know, somewhere around, you know, 5% short-lived assets as a function of depreciable basis as a whole. So you do a cost seg and then. In the multifamily world, you know, for instance, if you have a garden style low rise project, surface area parking, asphalt parking, lots of parking, lots of landscaping. I mean, you could be, as a percentage of depreciable basis, short lived assets, you could be twenty five percent, twenty eight percent, and that's a meaningful number that can turn into tax credit equity. Or as you mentioned earlier, if you're a for profit developer, you have a Resyndication project where the syndicator is coming in year two, the purchaser buys the building year one. You know, year one uh, you can do an acquisition cost seg year one, and incorporate those results and those losses flow over to the the for-profit developer.
0: And so those correct. Those yeah. are great examples. And I will just note, uh, don't try this at home. <laughs> uh, the example that Craig and I have been discussing with respect to a for-profit developer staying in to getting to the losses in year one. You know, if you're a tax professional listening to this podcast, you're probably thinking, yeah, but there's all these other issues. And we acknowledge that <laughs> right, there are a number right. of 704 b 752, deficit makeup, and other issues at play. And we can't go into all of those in the course of the podcast, but we just want to know that's a a opportunity to be considering for for for-profit developers. And as I say, maybe we'll have a more detailed podcast in the future on it, but it's something you definitely want to be discussing with your uh, tax professional. So you've convinced me Craig that a, this is something that's happening more frequently now, if not the, the new normal. And certainly, a best practice to get cost segregation studies at the very beginning of discussions with an investor. Now, let's talk a little bit more about what's involved in cost segregation studies. So, when someone calls you and they ask you about conducting a cost segregation study, what information do you need? Give me a brief overview or share with our listeners uh, a brief overview as to what you do in the course of a cost segregation
1: study. Sure. And, um, you know, a lot of the documents requests are gonna sound very familiar to the final uh, final cost certification process. There's a few extras there. And, and I say that as good news that, you know, okay, you know, we're always, everybody's time is valuable. So I to try to think about, okay, the developer has to, or wants to get a cost aggregation study conducted. You know, what does that mean for the developer? Yeah, besides the fee, does this require a lot of back and forth with them? A lot of documents, how much time is this going to, to use up on their end? And surprisingly, not that much. So typical, my typical initial request list for preliminary new construction or preliminary rehab cost segregation study is going to be a detailed schedule of value, estimated soft costs, blueprints, floor plans, the rehab scope, because every rehab scope is different, whereas new construction, I know what you're going to do. You're going to build a multifamily project and conceptual drawings. Those are going to get me 90% of the, what I need to do a, an initial draft of the preliminary cost segregation study. And then for the final cost segregation study of place and service, a uh, very similar list, you know, except we're going to do a site visit. We're going to use instead of a detailed schedule of value, the GC AIA, AIA pay app. We're going to spend a lot of time there. And that's that's the, for final new construction or rehab, the, the list is almost the same except for using the actual cost. Now for acquisition cost segs, because there are no invoices, there's no GC pay app. You know, it's a totally different request list and a totally different approach. So we're going to do a site visit. That's very important to an acquisition cost tag, just to understand the project. We're going to collect the appraisal. We're going to collect the property condition report and or physical needs assessment report. Uh, The blueprints, if they're available, and oftentimes they're not for an older project. Um, Floor plans are usually available because they're kind of done as part of the rehab scope. So, those are usually available. Um, the land closing statement to figure out the land value or, or total purchase price and the plan, uh, you know, a narrative of the planned rehab scope. So, those are the things we collect, which aren't that daunting. And then, what do we do once we get all this stuff? Well, for new construction or rehab, we're going to be using what's referred to in the IRS audit Technique Guide for cost segregation studies, the following method. That method is called the detailed engineering approach from actual cost records. And it's kind of just like it sounds using actual cost records or a detailed schedule value. If it's prelim, and we're going to be analyzing that and comparing that against the blueprints and the floor plans and doing a cost seg under that methodology. Whereas on an acquisition cost seg, we're going to be using a detailed engineering cost estimate approach where there are no invoices, there is no GC payout. And so what we are essentially doing in that scenario is Going to a construction database software such as RS Means, and recreating the whole building, all the components, and assigning a value to it. And then once we assign a value to it, we're going to essentially dilute it for its conditional value. And there's guidance on that and how to do that. And that's going to spit out a number, and we're going to apply that number ratio of assets, you know, building, personal property, site improvements to the to the total purchase price less land. And that, in a nutshell is what we need and kind of how we're gonna conduct the different kinds of cost segregation studies.
0: Great, thank you for that. That was a uh, great overview. Uh, So it it is definitely something that uh, isn't uh, too involved and obviously it's great to have your expertise so you can lead the clients through what is they need to help uh, get through the cost segregation study and bring more value to the development. Now I did wanna look a bit towards the future uh, given the importance of uh, expensing under current law, and the relationship between expensing and the value of a cost segregation study, and there is, of course, you know the fact that the expensing provision does uh, start to phase out in the future. So, do you think that, you know, given the potential phase out, that this is temporary, or do you think getting cost segregation studies now is the new normal, even if the Ability to expense five and fifteen-year property does start to phase out uh, in the as the current law provides, uh, and I say as current law provides because it's quite possible that 100% expensing is here to stay. And future legislation will further extend it out. You know, it's also obviously possible that you know, future legislation could uh accelerate the phase out of uh expensing and personal property land improvement. So so what's your take right now, Craig?
1: That's a great question. What does the future hold for cost segregation studies in the Light Tech arena? I think they're here to stay. You know, I think now that we've they're they're widely used now, they're just people get comfortable doing them. They're part of the process now. You know, to, to do anything new requires time and resources and educating investors and Creating vendor lists and approved vendor lists, and now that all now that all has do, been done, people are okay with cost segregation studies. So I personally think they're here to stay, even though, you know, 100% bonus depreciation under current law is scheduled to go down to 80% in 2023 and 60% in 2024, and decreasing 20% a year thereafter annually. I th- I still think they're just here to stay. They're going to always increase yield and now that we're all comfortable doing them and, and instituting them just like they've been done for decades in other industries i believe they're here to stay the cost isn't that much compared to the value the value is substantial
0: i totally agree with you you know if you when you think about the the value of cost segregation studies for long-term tax properties as you noted you sort of put the the value proposition in the realm of you know one or two cents, maybe more, depending upon the dynamics of a particular development. Um, you know, the value to you know the developer, if they end up getting allocated losses to them, you know, is sort of obviously sort of quite substantial. But the from the investor's perspective, you know, getting it over one year versus five years, it's definitely better at one than five, but five is still pretty valuable. And if you end up not getting the full expensing, you end up going over five years on an accelerated basis, or 15 years on an accelerated basis instead of 27 after 30. That still is uh, pretty compelling. And as right. you point out, the fact that it doesn't cost very much and it's sort of the new normal, it's hard to see why the, you know, getting of cost segregation studies doesn't just become similar to getting a market study and getting a number of other studies in the course of an acquisition. As you pointed out, everything's kind of set up. So you just punch through and do it every time. That's right. So we've, so we've talked about cost segregation studies in the context of the low income housing tax credit. But as I did say earlier, it's not just a tool for affordable housing, but it's all property. So I want you to describe some of the services you provide to owners of uh, real estate other than long-term housing cash credit properties.
1: Right. I mean, a cost segregation study can be used for really anything that's depreciable. Because really, you're, you know, you're, the goal of the cost segregation study is to properly allocate the cost or a purchase price to its appropriate asset classes. And so that's going to be used in all kinds of industry, commercial real estate. Uh, And and as you know, the various different types of commercial real estate, like what does that mean? Well, commercial office space lease, restaurants, hotels. And so I see, you know, a natural fit for cost segregation studies is going to be the opportunity zone program. And I am seeing that currently as those develop various types of commercial real estate, if you will. Yeah,
0: I think your observation about opportunity zones is uh, particularly useful what many listeners may not think about is if you do, if an investor invests in opportunity zones by virtue of uh, getting to accelerate losses uh, between now and 2026, those acceleration of those losses between now and 2026 might help generate some tax benefits to actually help offset the capital gain that gets deferred until 2026. So there's definitely some positive interaction with Opportunity Zone investments such that uh, fund managers of Opportunity zones should be thinking about cost segregation studies uh, to uh, accelerate tax losses uh, to their investors. Of course, here I'm talking about Opportunity Zone investments in real estate, which clearly has been the dominant investment category for Opportunity Zones. So I definitely would encourage our Opportunity Zone clients and prospective clients to be reaching out to Craig and discussing with him uh, some of the benefits to them of a cost segregation study. So Craig, as we uh, wrap up, I wanted to give you a chance, actually before wrapping up, there was one other question I wanted to ask you. And that is, I suspect that there's at least one listener right now going, great idea, Mike and Craig. The problem is I placed my property in service two years ago. I didn't get you know, a cost segregation study. I filed my uh, tax returns with five or 7% of my costs allocated to personal property and land improvements. And now you're telling me the percentage you know, probably should have been much higher. Are they out of luck or should they give you a call?
1: They should give me a call. That's a great question. Um, so a couple of things. So you could definitely uh, do a, what's called a look back cost segregation study. And it's just like it sounds this new construction, we're going to be looking back to actual cost records of whenever that project was in service. And there's no time limit. You can look back 10, 15, 20 years, doesn't matter. And then how to implement those results. So let's say you do look back cost segregation study for a new construction rehab or acquisition. And the project was placed in service last year. So you filed one return, uh, in that scenario, you you haven't necessarily set a method of accounting for those depreciable assets. So in theory, you could amend that return and incorporate those results. The other option you could do is do a 3115, Form 3115, which is an application change in method of accounting form, and incorporate the true up, if you will, under Internal Revenue Code Section 41A on the current year return. So there's two ways to kind of effectuate the true up, if you will, you can either amend under, under certain circumstances if you've only filed one return using that method. But once you file two, you're now in the 3,115 kind of land, if you will. And so if you, in, in your scenario, uh, Mike, yeah, the tax return has been filed for two years, you're in year three, that taxpayer would have to go the 3,115 route and file for an application and change method of accounting. And there's some nuances there, as you would imagine with any tax form. The major nuance is uh, that form is kind of split into two sections, non-automatic and automatic approval. And one of the hiccups that we see with tax credit deals, any tax credit, doesn't matter if it's LIHTC or, or any other tax credit, is as soon as you take a federal credit, you've now put yourself in the non-automatic section of the 3115, which requires you know more time and resources. You got to pay the IRS a user fee you know, somewhere around $10,000. And there's a timing component to to completing the 3115. If it's not automatic, you have to complete it in the year you want changed. So for instance, if we were to file a 3115 today in 2021, those results would not go into the 2020 return. They would go into the 2020 return, 2021 return. So there's a timing component for the non-automatic route. I would
0: but, uh, just tell our listeners... Uh, in short, uh, it's not too late. Call Craig.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a better way to say it. it can be done. Yeah, I definitely got in the weeds there. That is It's sure. not too
0: late. Uh, and, you know, Craig kind of touched upon, you know, the uh, accounting method change filing, request for accounting method change filing, whether they're automatic or not automatic. And you get into partnerships, you get into, you know, mini returns versus administrative adjustment requests. What year would that? that change take effect when would the investors uh, you know, get the benefit of the accelerated losses. But at the end of the day, uh, there are means to go back and, you know, have a cost aggregation study done and to accelerate losses. Um, it's just, you have to kind of march through your own individual fact pattern to know what the magnitude of the benefit will be and when you'll be able to receive it. So cost aggregation studies are clearly becoming more important and more popular. And I know our listeners who haven't embraced them yet. I'm sure will want to be uh, reviewing and reaching out to you to embrace them. But before we wrap up, are there other things we haven't discussed that you think are important to share?
1: I just like to reemphasize: start early, especially in the light tech world, where if you want to increase your tax rate to equity, it's got to be layered up front. It's uh, not easy to ask for it at in service that you're going to get a cost sag and boost up yield, and you want more equity. It you know the deal has already been underwritten. It, uh, the leverage is now gone for you to kind of take that position. So, start early. Yeah, I always
0: uh, appreciate that advice. Start early. That applies to a lot of parts of life. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's good advice in the tax world, the auto world. Uh, start early, and I would encourage our listeners to start early. And then I would also uh, encourage listeners to give thought to the impact uh, of a cost study on the exit. Both from the investor's perspective and the developer's perspective, both nonprofit and for profit developers. There's a lot of interaction uh, there in terms of year 15. And I would also just say that as you're assessing year 15, make sure you're working with an experienced tax professional because initial thinking might not be right. And there's definitely different approaches to solving various issues that might arise uh, in year 15 when the investors exiting and the capital accounts become very critical. And I don't wanna spend any more time on that without getting into a lot of uh, minutia, but uh, please reach out if you have questions on that. Um, So let me uh, just stop now and thank you, Craig. It's been uh, great having you on the podcast. I really appreciate you. you sharing your insights with us today. My pleasure. And as I've noted, if you're interested in talking with Craig about your transactions, I will include in today's show notes Craig's contact information, but also you can reach out to Craig directly through his email, craig.staswick at novaco.com. Any questions? And that's Craig, C R A I G, dot stazwick, S T A S W I C K, at novaco.com. Also, I want to encourage you to tune in to next week's podcast. There, we're going to move into the topic of new market tax credits. And then we're going to discuss the current state of the tax equity market for these credits. And joining me is going to be Brad Elphick. Brad's a partner of mine in our Georgia office, and he leads the Novigradic New Markets Tax Credit Working Group. Our discussion is going to include the observations about the impact that COVID-19, the COVID-19 pandemic, has had on investor desirability of investing in new market tax credits and how COVID-19 pandemic has factored into their investor Decisions. And you can make sure that you're notified as soon as that episode is available, and as well as future episodes, by subscribing to the Task Credit Tuesday podcast. You can go directly to www.novigradic.com slash podcast to subscribe, uh, as well as you can also stream the show there directly. And of course, you can also subscribe to Task Credit Tuesday on your favorite podcasting platform, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Radio Public. That's it for now. I'm Michael Novogradic. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogradic and Company LLP. Archive podcasts are available online at ww.novaco.com forward podcast, or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at ww.novico.com forward podcast.